Greetings. This is the second message looking at the life and ministry of William Williams of Pantakelly. Now, besides learning more about this man's life and what others thought of him, we're going to look at the topics of new birth and assurance of salvation. But this message will be focused on new birth. You know, in fact, if this was my final message and I was the Lord took me home tonight, what I would want to tell all Christians in this world is to pursue two topics, new birth and assurance of salvation. To the unbelieving world, what I would say to you is, um, note how this world has lied to you. It has not kept its promises. And I would pursue the Lord Jesus Christ to see if you find him trustworthy. Because what you will find is he's exactly who he claims to be, the Son of God, it will give you ample evidence that you would believe in him. And I would explore uh, the Gospel of John, because Jesus says uh, he does many miracles, um, but they have signs behind it. There's meaning, there's purpose behind the miracles. In other words, they're, they're just not miracles for the sake of miracles. So in order to find out who this Jesus is, uh, I would study the, the John's Gospel. I would take particular note why he did these miracles. Not only did he do them, but why did he do them? And then I would also explore the Bible about why Christ came into this world. Because he came into this world to accomplish many things. But for the Christian, new birth and assurance, and we're going to focus as we through the eyes, if you will, of a William Williams on this topic of new birth. So we're kind of two parts to this message. We're going to look at this man's life and then... Um, I want to walk you through about why it's essential that we are actually born again, which is not something we can do, but it's only something God can do. It is entirely a miracle. God's grace in our lives. Yes, indeed. Well, let's begin and look at, uh, I want to read to you a quote about William Williams by Mr. Morgan. And this quote here probably wraps up his entire life very well. He, meaning William Williams, is not first among equals at all, but a giant, a giant far above the ordinary. I refer to him as a giant, a giant of a pioneer. Give him yet another name, a revolutionary, a revolutionary artist. Those who were blazing the trail in the revival realize that the newness of their religious expression needed a fresh style of literature to be its handmaid. In the 40s of the 18th century, Williams is an example of a talented young man who providentially discovers his proper task. And the fusion of these two things, the talent and the task, generating within him a totally unexpected and indispensable dynamic. Hmm. Let me stop right there for a moment. Do you see what he just said? I hope I read it well enough. But there's a fusion of two things. Talent and task. The talent that God in his providence has given Williams, and now the task. And William Williams, along with his colleagues, is about to turn wells upside down. They're being subversive. They're making what is wrong, they're making it right. They're turning it upside down. The, the, the devil doesn't know it yet, but 
during this time, but he's about to lose when he's like going, hey, Wells is mine permanently. Not so. Griffin Jones is on the mark. Daniel Rowland has been saved. Hal Harris won't stop preaching as a layman. He's preaching the gospel. He's an enthusiast. He's a zealot. And William Williams, as a young man, is pursuing a medical career. But one day, I I think it was about 1735, we'll double-check the date, as he's walking, he hears Harris preaching. Relatively close by, neighbors, where Williams was growing up, and Williams was being tutored by two ministers, and here he is going off to medical college. And he has a lot of head knowledge. He grew up in a nonconformist church. His mom and dad, John and Dorothy, had six children, very solid Christian parents. So he had the truth, Williams that is, but there was no new birth. And that day he stopped and he heard Harris's preaching. And God blessed his word and gave Harris or gave Williams a new affection because and Harris was that instrument. So here's my point. God stirs one person, Griffin Jones. Griffin Jones, Daniel Rowland gets wonderfully saved by Griffin Jones. And at the same time, Hal Harris has gotten saved. And Daniel Rowland and Hal Harris don't even know each other. But they both have the same experience. Then in America, we got Jonathan Edwards, greatest mind that uh, America perhaps has ever uh, been blessed with. And God is moving in, in, the, in the colonies. And now all of a sudden, because of Hal Harris's preaching, now we have William Williams. Well, what's happening? Well, God's kingdom is advancing. You don't see it. There's no army. There's no guns. There's no ammunition. There's no blowing of the trumpets. It's individual souls getting saved and talents and tasks are being fused. Just like you and I have talents and tasks. There's a natural gifts that God has given us, and those gifts can flourish and grow and mature. And then God gives out assignments. Here's what I want you to do. But we don't necessarily know how well they all connect. Williams has no idea. But he's going to become a zealot, just like Hal Harris. Now, I want to remind you what the doctor said. Remember when I said to you that the doctor, and this happened a couple of different times, as I recall, would get... um, you know, just the, the toll of the ministry, and if you're a minister and a preacher, I think it's kind of encouraging to know, yeah, the doctor got fatigued too, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And during one of these times, I mean, and how can you blame him? Uh, there was a time during the 1930s in Aberfan Wells after being a minister there. Uh, that, that, by the way, is the part of his ministry that I'm most fascinated with uh, for a good, but eight to ten years. And he had a respite. And now, after World War II, uh, being the minister at Westminster Chapel with a, with a Campbell Morgan, um, well, he needs a respite, and he's reading uh, uh, Welsh hymns by William Williams, and he says this about them. He says that um, he was reading the Welsh hymns of William Williams in the Calvinistic Methodist hymn book when he was given, again given, such a conscience of the presence and love of God as seemed to excel all that he had ever known before. It was a foretaste of glory. 
This was the reason why, at a conference for Christian ministers, Lloyd-Jones would say that William Williams' hymns have an incomparable blend of truly great poetry and perfect theology. Yes, in fact, there would be those that would say that William's uh, poetry and hymns was the confession of faith of the Calvinistic Methodist. Again, I want to emphasize this a beautiful fusion of gifts and talents that God indeed used in a mighty way. Now, as I mentioned, as a young man, uh, um, you know, he was born in South of Wells, and he's called William Williams of Pantakelly. Well, where does the name Pantakelly come from? Well, if memory serves me right, it's a farm. In fact, you'll see the picture of it here. And I think it came on his mother's side, Dorothy. And I'm going to double check this if I'm speaking out of school. But I think I have this right. Where John was a single man, William's father, older man, Dorothy, younger lady. And she was an initiative taker. And John uh, was traveling because he was, you know, back then you, you look at wells and you've got sheep, you got a little bit of cattle, you got some horses, you got some cereal, some um, uh, as far as just for, for crops and grain and things of that nature. And I would imagine that John was traveling, if I remember right, John was traveling, you know, to market and things like that. And there's young Dorothy at the door. And, and uh, I think she said something to the effect of, uh, John, uh, uh, you know, how long are you going to keep searching for a wife? Don't you see that you have one nearby? It was something to that effect. Well, I like initiative takers. Good for her. I'll, I'll double check this story, but I, I don't think I'm confusing it. And um, so it sounds like they had a wonderful marriage, and, and Williams, along with his uh, siblings, grew up in a nonconformist, uh, uh, independent chapel, not part of the Anglican church. And... Um, uh, and so he was uh, he was blessed by that to grow up in a solid biblical church. Though there were things that he would learn because there were doctrinal differences within this congregation in terms of being Calvinistic versus Armenian, and um, that which would end up leading to a church split. But but Williams would see as a young man um, people going out of their way to create division, to argue. It's such a shame. I see that today. I remember when one Christian sister said, it's an amazing thing that I can get Christians to come for dinner at my home or maybe have a day of barbecue and games and things of that nature. I can, you know, I can gather up a lot of Reformed people, but I can't get them to go to the same church. I can't get them to go to the same church because they're just, we're just looking for reasons to argue. And I think that's just something we need to think about. I think history is full of examples of this. Doesn't mean I'm not talking about, oh, we need to compromise or water down. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about giving up our convictions. But some sense of grace to be able to worship with those that hold a different theological view on matters, give people time to work it through, to think it through. I point out to you, this may just rock your world, but uh, Lloyd-Jones said that that uh, a secondary matter is Armenianism, Armenianism and Calvinism. He viewed that as a secondary matter, an important matter, but a secondary. In other words, no reason to divide over it. Isn't that interesting? I, I, was, I was surprised. 
uh, was Pastor Alistair Begg who first brought it to my attention, and then I read the booklet for myself. The Marks of a Genuine Christian. I can't remember exactly the title, but that was that was the heart of it. And what were primary matters and what were secondary matters? Like, for example, a primary matter is new birth, being the life of God in our souls. That's a primary matter. That's what makes a Christian. Not whether you're Calvinistic or Armenian. So, um, um, so there's much to learn here. There's many examples, but some sense of grace and humility and union and the doctor himself, uh, you know, where Campbell Morgan had a completely different view, more along the Romanian side, where, where Lloyd-Jones was a st- staunch Calvinist. But yet they were able to minister very effectively together at Westminster Chapel. Well, back to William Williams. So here he is. He's got a, a solid parents, growing up in a solid church, solid tutors. I think there were two ministers. Wonderfully saved by Hal Harris. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that he was the Jonathan Edwards of Wells. He was a preacher, a writer, a historian in a sense, a poet, a hymn writer, a theologian, and a wonderful counselor. Fusion of gifts and talents. Made him a wonderful Christian shepherd. A wonderful Christian shepherd. And this is going to lead to, to um, you hear these phrases, and you hear more often, um, called experiential Christianity or experiential Calvinism. And the example that I would give you is the Calvinistic Methodists had this perfect blend of pietism with the reform pedigree. Pietism and reform pedigree. That's experiential Christianity. When I'm born again, my affections have changed. Something has happened to me. My mind, not only have my desires changed for holiness, but my mind has changed that I would seek truth. God's Spirit has illuminated my mind. He's changed my heart, which has changed my affections, which has changed my will. But I can now see the life of God is in my soul. So like, again, I'm, I just picked the Calvinistic Methodist because that's where I was led to. But there's Puritans, there's Reformers, there's, you can look at particular centuries of the Baptists and the Presbyterians and other nonconformists, and they're, they're making the same point. You can make the same point, which is they want to go back to, to New Testament Christianity. And New Testament Christianity is pietism and reform pedigree. Or you could say holy living and truth, truth and holy living, and they're not divided. Now, when Williams was growing up, there was a challenge because the Anglican church uh, stopped being what I would say at large a Christian church. In other words, it was dead in its formality. It was dead in its formality. Let me give you a personal example. In St. Michael's, Maryland, I they, it was a Saturday, and my wife and I were walking this uh, quaint little town, and I walk into an Anglican church because it was open. It was open for a tour, and it was a beautiful uh, stone church. Just absolutely loved it. And I and I and as I was getting the tour, um, the individual uh, who was showing me, she goes, "Well, here, uh, our emphasis 
on our on our worship services is formality. And I go, excuse me? She goes, uh, it's formality. Well, that's our emphasis. So John Wesley, he emphasized preaching of God's word. We emphasize formality. And I go, what do you mean by formality? And she said, oh, our rituals. We have rituals. We, we have a, a set scheme that we follow in order to worship God. And that's our emphasis. So we still, we open the Bible, we read from the Bible, but that's not our emphasis. And I, and I thought, well, first off, of course, I was sad by that answer, but I love the honesty of it. I, I, I love the honesty of it. Sometimes we could just ask people, what do you mean? And this would be an example of what I mean, that it's misguided, right? We, in other words, you could, like, within the Presbyterian Church, we want our worship service in, is, in, is in order. But I think it was like Richard Baxter made the point, something like, I would rather have a church disorderly saved than orderly spiritually dead, okay? So what Baxter really wants is he wants a church that is actually saved and worshiping in proper order, right? In a biblical way, right? But he goes, you know, I'd rather have a church that is disorderly, a little chaotic, all right? Missing on a few points, but it's saved versus being spiritually dead and adhering to our formality, right? So it is a Christianity with no life, no no new birth. And the nonconformists at this time were busy fighting over doctrinal issues and heresy, as I mentioned before, had crept in. So that became a problem. And yet, as I say, the Calvinistic Methodists were yet to be born. But that's it. But God's saying, okay, now I'm going to raise up a new crop of ministers. Some of them are going to be within the Anglican Church. Some of them are going to be among the nonconformists. And some of them are going to be outside the church altogether. They're going to be the farmers and the cobblers, the people that are just kind of like overlooked, where God is saying, now listen, you ain't going to preach my gospel? Don't worry about it. I'll go get some people who will. Now, there are three best-selling books that I want to tell you about, and then we're going to get into this topic of new birth. The three best-selling books in Wells at this time was Called to the Unconverted by Richard Baxter. Okay. And then um, um, Piety, Practicing Piety, that's what it is. The Practice of Piety by Lewis, and I'm going to spell his last name, B-A-Y-L-Y-S. So The Practice of Piety by Lewis, and his last name, Bayless, B-A-Y-L-Y-S. And the third one, you want to guess? Besides the Bible, right? What would be the third most popular book, or among the three? Okay, you ready? It's Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, right? Because, again, these things, these books have the perfect blend of truth and life. Life and truth. Okay, piety, growth and holiness, uh, just walking with the Lord, and, and wonderful theology. In fact, Williams would say that he wants to learn the language of Canaan. In other words, he wants to be able to speak to people like the way Christian in Pilgrim's Progress and, and Faithful spoke, and how Christian and Hopeful spoke. To speak like the evangelist, 
and under and other wonderful Christian characters in this magnificent book. In fact, it was in Vanity Fair that um, where it would have been uh, Christian and 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 hopeful. Um, they couldn't understand their language. Their Christian language, the way they would speak to one another with such grace and love and speaking about heavenly things that the people of Vanity Fair knew nothing about. It is a new language. I used to end these messages years ago that may Christ be our most intimate companion. In other words, we would walk closely with him. That prayer would become our new sport. In other words, as excited as we are about American sports, let us be excited about prayer that we would need as much as oxygen, and that, and thirdly, that Scripture would become our new language. That Scripture would become our new language. And where do I get it from? Well, I get it from reading people such as this. I, I don't think in my messages I need to say this, so I'm not a plagiarist. There's not an, anything that I've shared with you has always come from either other authors or preachers. There's no, like, new idea Um the only thing that I could ever offer you is sometimes I might restate, I might state something wrongly because I'm mixing up books or something of that nature. Uh, but everything I'm sharing with you comes from other people. I may not be articulating as well as they do, but it comes from others. Well, all right. Now, new birth. I want to look at this subject the way that I think a Calvinistic Methodist might look at it. So I want to ask you some questions. In Genesis 3.24, God says, listen, we're going to need to protect Eden. We're not going to allow Adam and Eve back in. Put a cherubim, give him a flaming sword, and don't allow anybody back. So here's my question. Are you going to be able to overcome that cherubim with a flaming sword to enter the garden? And if the answer is no, what do you think heaven's like? You're going to be able to sneak over the wall? Is that is that what you're thinking? Is there any possibility you're going to get past an angel with a flaming sword? I don't think so. What about Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, listen, your righteousness, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes to ever enter the kingdom of God. Now, you can say whatever you want to say about the Pharisees, but they, they, they knew their Bible. They knew scripture far better than I. And at least overtly, they lived a much more holy life than I do. Is my righteousness ever going to exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes? Um, no, it's not. What about Galatians chapter 3, verse 19? It says, for through the law, I died to the law. In other words, I have no confidence in the law. I have no confidence. It can't do anything for me. And he goes on to say, so that I might live to God. So how am I going to grow in holiness? Am I going to put myself under the law? 
and and uh, treat it like as if I'm going to the gym. You know, yes, I can. I'm going to go. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to keep all of God's laws and precepts because in my flesh, in my character, in my own meritous works, in my own performance, being a good American, we are all about performance. Relationships are based on performance. Quid pro quo. What can you do for me? And I am going to, by my flesh, am going to be able to keep all of God's law. Well, if you're keeping all of God's law, then you don't need to, you're going a completely different way than what Paul is saying. For he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So here's my question. How are you doing? Are you living to God? Hmm? Is that something you can just do yourself? Or do you need somebody to do something for you? Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 3. You know it very well. I'm going to read it quickly to you. Nicodemus is surprised. Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay? So Jesus says, Hey, listen, unless your unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees and the, and the um, scribes, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. This gives us some insight. I always say it's the psalmist, uh, but maybe there's some scripture I'm thinking about, but I think it's Isaiah chapter 45, like verse 8, where Isaiah is calling down from a righteousness from heaven. He's calling on God to do something. And in chapter 45, I think verse 22, you can double check me, it's where it's a wonderful verse the, the Methodist preacher used the day that uh, Charles Spurgeon got saved, where he says, Turn to me, look unto me, all the ends of this earth, and thou shalt be saved. That's what the Lord is saying. Look unto me and be saved. So in Isaiah 45, we have the prophet crying out to God, God, I need a righteousness to rain down from heaven because I can't do this. And God graciously says, listen, I want you to look unto me to be saved. And now here's Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when, when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You, you have no control over this. You, 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 as you didn't bring your own life into this, you know, you didn't bring your own existence into this life. He had no control over it. Such is the case is here. It's not something you can do. It's something that's done for you. And this is true for every genuine Christian. Because the Lord Jesus said so. The only way to overcome and live the life and to be received into heaven is to be born from above. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus says to him, how, how do you not know this already, Nicodemus? 
How do you not already know this? And this is where I want to turn my your, my friends to Ezekiel. And I'm going to be reading from Ezekiel 34 and 36, okay? And I'm going to and I want I want you to see the pattern of this, okay? So, first off, the Lord is not pleased. He's not pleased with those that he that he um, of the shepherds that are supposed to oversee his flock. And so the Lord, beginning in verse 11, now I want you to show the pattern. I'm going to be skipping around now. I myself will search for my sheep. So I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them. I will bring them out from, from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. I myself will judge. I will rescue my flock. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will make a covenant with them of peace and banish wild beasts from the land and may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord. So what's the pattern that you see? What's the word that I keep repeating over and over again? I. The Lord is saying, I will do these things. Furthermore, in chapter 36, beginning with verse 25. Now listen closely. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of the stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Now, can you see how, is it Henry Skugel's um, claim that a Christian is the life of God and the soul of a man, woman, or child? Now, can you see when Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, how do you not know these things? Did the prophet Ezekiel not tell you that these things are going to happen? Do you not believe the scriptures which you teach, Nicodemus? This whole idea of being born again or born from above is not new. You see it throughout all the scriptures that there's wonderful work. Now, why are we born again? Ah, that's a good question. Why are we born again? Well, that's where we ought to take a hard look 
at why Christ came into this world. And if you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So here's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God because we can't get through the cherubim with the flaming sword. We, 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 we can't, our righteousness cannot exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. We need a righteousness to come down from heaven. And Jesus did these things, took, took the penalty for our sins upon himself where the wrath of God would be exhausted on the cross. And you could explore it even further, going back to John's Gospel, chapter 3, where Jesus is saying, just like the, the snake in the wilderness, where, where, where the Lord is saying, look, look at your sin. Look at what you've done. And they're healed. Likewise, when you look at the cross, it's saying, look at your sin. Look at it and be healed. Well, John, is there anything I can do? For this new birth? Well, of course there is. By God's providence, you're listening to this message, and God has been moving in many different ways. But it's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, John, how do I begin to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, go find out who he is. Is he trustworthy? Is he capable? Does he keep his promises? By studying John's gospel, that's where I would recommend Study his life, his ministry, his works, and prove to yourself that he's the Son of God. And as I always say, because the old preachers used to say this, ask the Lord to show you your sins, all your sins, your secret sins, the ones that you love the most. And then ask the Lord to show you your Savior as you're studying and pursuing this person of Jesus Christ. And to the Christians... In this very difficult world, in precarious times, how wonderful it is to have to be born again, to be born from above. And so let's pursue and draw even closer to God so that we may live unto Him. In other words, how do we grow in holiness? Because we are living unto God. For through the law, I died to the law, I see that it is absolutely no use to me. Okay, not because there's something wrong with the law, there's something wrong with my nature. But now that God has given me a clean heart, and I in the the the, the 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 you know that my heart of stone has gone away, I'm no longer diamond hard, my forehead, you know, is my 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 chest of uh, my steel chest has been shattered. The word of God illuminates my mind, changes my will, Romans 6, 17. Now that I'm growing, that I have power, I may live unto God. And now I'm able to represent God's glory by keeping his wonderful law and his precepts, not because of some slavish obedience or by the flesh. No, but by this new birth, I'm able to reflect God's glory. And that's the wonderful secret. That's the wonderful mystery. I hope I'm articulating it well enough. And that's what these Welsh Calvinistic Methodists understood. And that's what William Williams understood. It wasn't, he grew up with head knowledge and God wonderfully moved and gave him, cleaned him a fresh start, forgiveness, a new heart, 
The power of God in his soul, the life of God in his soul gave him life. And he would go on to be one of God's wonderful foot soldiers proclaiming the gospel, going to turn wells completely upside down. And that very act can happen today in our time. And by God's providence and will, I hope it does. Well, I'm at the 36 minute mark. Sorry for being so long. Until next time, grace upon grace be with you all. Thank you.